0: Uh, on the Aegean Sea, between the Aegean and the Ionian Sea, and it's between mainland Greece and the peninsula. The city was destroyed in 146 BC in a decisive battle between the Romans and the Greek city-states. And this, it lay in ruins for about 100 years. And um, 100 years after that, it was destroyed by the Romans. Julius Caesar, as the Roman emperor at the time, rebuilt the city. And it, became, it, it came to be occupied by largely Roman freedmen and uh, freedmen in Roman times were slaves that had, that had gained their freedom, and or gladiators that had gained their freedom. So it's, it's populated largely by Roman freedmen, obviously by Greeks being in, in Greece, and then by uh, Jews, and then a couple of other, a sprinkling of other nationalities and, and foreigners all thrown into this city. So uh, by about AD 50, uh, Corinth has become the cultural and economic hub in the region. It's quite an important city. But because it had been essentially sacked and then rebuilt by the Romans, there's no established aristocracy in the city. So there's no lineage of power that's um, that he's been a ruler of Corinth for, for X amount of years and he's passed it on and he's passed it on. There's no ruling class in Corinth because it was sacked and it sat destroyed for 100 years and then it's rebuilt with, with, a, group of, with a group of men and women that are, that are largely uh, from the underbelly of society. There's no established hierarchy in the city. And so because of the cultural mix and the economic opportunities that lay in the city, there's a huge chance there for upward mobility. You can advance yourself. So if you had a chance or if you needed a second chance, Corinth was the city that you could make it happen in. If you worked hard enough and if you were shrewd enough, you could quickly ascend the ladder of power in the city of Corinth. Mm -hmm. If you've ever heard stories or read stories about what the Wild West was like, uh, being the land of opportunity. It was sold to people as the land of opportunity. Yeah, you want to go, go west. That was, that was what it was sold to people. Corinth in AD 50 was that, was that place. So people were flocking to the city, and it was a city that offered them no oppression from a ruling class, and it offered them econo- economic opportunity that they had never previously had access to. But we all know that power, power is like a dog. It abhors a vacuum. All right? Come on, guys. Do you get that? If I'm going to tell jokes and no one's going to laugh, it's going to be a long morning, guys. Just work just work a little bit with me. <clears throat> Power abhors a vacuum. And so what happens is um, because the city is filled with Former slaves and former gladiators—they've spent their entire life being told that they were useless and worthless, and they're treated as dogs. If you want to understand what oppression uh, looks like, go and under, go and look at what it was like to be a slave in Roman times. But there's this power vacuum, and what happens is it starts to suck people into this power vacuum and there's society the, the, the corinthian society is characterized as one where people are jockeying for position and power it's it's it becomes a civil a city of self promotion and trying to rise above the rest because there's no one else above the rest we're all equals and we're all low so i want to rise above the rest and so the city becomes characterized by that see the romans value power in their leaders the Greeks value knowledge and eloquence in their leaders. They, they want people who are learned and people who can speak really well. The Greeks, uh, the Romans, want people who can lead them into battle. The Jews value authority from God that plays out in God's favor. It looks like God's favor on your life. That's what. So the, this city is characterized by Romans, Greeks, uh, Roman freedmen, Greeks, and Jews, largely. And th- this is what those three groups of people are looking for in a leader, in a ruler. So this creates a city that's marked by social ascent, personal power, boasting, self-display, and self-glory. They become a society who pride themselves on intellectual pursuits. They had re- residence in large, wealthy, metropolitan port city. There's an emphasis on comfort. It's a society that and that they are a society that advocates for a full indulgence in the pleasures of life, right? They've spent the rest, they've spent all of their former lives being denied the the indulgence and pleasures of life. And now as they into this city, they don't want to deny, deny themselves any pleasure. I don't know if it sounds familiar to you at all. Pride themselves on intellectual pursuits. They live in large, wealthy metropolitan cities. There's an emphasis on comfort. They advocate for a full indulgence in the pleasures of life. Paul has had some initial success. He preaches there in Acts chapter 18, and he has initial success with the gospel, and so a church is established and born. But now the society has progressed, and the Corinthian church begins to question Paul's authority. The gospel that Paul is preaching, and the man himself, Paul himself, seem to be the exact opposite of where the Corinthian society is progressing to. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you. In his first letter to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, he 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 notes, it's his first letter to them. After the church is established in Acts chapter 18, he writes a letter to them. And he says, already there's disunity. It's the first letter that I'm writing to you. And already there's disunity in the church around who you should follow. Some say we follow Paul. Others say we follow Apollos. Others say, no, I follow Christ. And he says, actually, what you guys are doing is you're looking for who's the most impressive. And you're, you're beginning to become divided over who is the most powerful. We will follow the most powerful person, and, and that is causing division in your church. Because you are a society that is characterized by trying to get ahead, by being above instead of below, you're looking for the one who you can follow who's above, who's the top. <clears throat> in a second letter to them, he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and he says this from verse 1. I hope that you will put up with me in a, a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's uh, cunning, your minds might somehow be led astray by your sincere and pure devotion to Christ from it. But if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirits with a small s and a big s, if, somebody, if you receive a different spirit with a small S from the spirit with a big S you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easy enough. He says, ha, ha, you, people are preaching different gospels, a different Jesus, and a different spirit to what you received when you were planted, and yet somehow you just put up with it. And the reason you put up with it is because you're looking for somebody who's over you. You're looking for somebody who's the strongest, the tallest, the best looking, and the most successful to lead you. See, that's the reason. So the problem that Paul has is that he doesn't embody any of the marks of power that the Corinthian church values. In many ways, he's exactly the opposite person of the person that they're looking for to follow. These are the, these are the problems Paul has. He's gentle and meek in his leadership. In Second Corinthians, he says, uh, my letters are weighty and forceful, but, and, but you guys tell me in person, he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Right? In person, he's unimpressive. His speaking amounts to nothing. Paul writes this to the church. He doesn't speak with any eloquence. Second Corinthians chapter eleven, he says, I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. He says, I'm not a very good speaker. You Greeks are trained in public speaking, as I'm not. I've got a little bit of knowledge, but I'm an untrained speaker. He isn't rich or powerful. Instead, he chooses to do a menial job that will be socially dishonorable. So Paul is a tent maker. He, he's, he, he's, a, he's a tent maker, which is a menial job in Corinth, just so that he, can, so that he doesn't charge when he preaches the gospel. He says in, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, he says, Was it a sin for me to lower myself to do a menial job in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? And he's experienced a hard life. He lists all of the troubles that he's faced in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He's been beaten, shipwrecked, whipped, he's hungry, he's been abandoned. Paul is the opposite of the person that this church is looking for. He's, all of the things, these are all of the things that caused the Corinthian church to doubt Paul. He wasn't the man of power that they wanted to follow. And the church is divided because they're saying, some I want to follow Paul. Others, Apollos is a little bit more impressive than Paul. Others are saying, no, Christ is more impressive than the both of those guys. So in light of all these accusations against him, and in light of the challenging of his authority, we would expect Paul to mount a defense, to defend himself, perhaps with an overwhelming display of his authority. Or at very least, we'd expect him to hide the things, to hide his weaknesses that are causing division, that are causing the church to have concerns about his legitimacy legitimacy. See, the stability of the Corinthian church rests on how Paul responds to these challenges to his authority. But the the Corinthian church isn't just a local church. This is the church plant that's going to open up the whole region to the gospel. This is the church where Greeks, Jews, Romans, and other nationalities are learning what it means to be the body of Christ together, not just the Jews, the chosen people, and the Gentiles. This is the church where, where they are learning what it means to be the body of Christ. The church is going to open up the whole region to the gospel, right? If this church fails, if this church is deceived and, and falls astray, this is a problem. There's quite a lot on the line here. But here's the crazy thing. All of the concerns that the church has about Paul are true. He's not eloquent. He is gentle and meek. He's not rich or powerful. He does work a menial job, and he does constantly face hardship and trouble. But instead of hiding from these things, he highlights them. In fact, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 30, he says, If I'm going to boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. I boast in the things that show my weakness. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, boasting in things that show your weakness. This isn't, this isn't a humble brag. This, is, this isn't Paul saying, uh, oh, it's, it's tough at the top. You don't know how difficult it is to be this good. It's not a humble brag. This is Paul showing, boasting in the things that, that display how weak he genuinely is. The word translated as weak here is feeble. It means feeble, impotent, sick, without strength. It's not Paul pretending to be weak. It's literally Paul boasting to the church about how weak he is. And in doing this, and he's doing this with the expansion of the gospel in the whole region on the line. There's quite a lot on the line here not something that comes naturally to Paul but it's something that God has done in him in his first letter to the same church in Corinth he writes this first Corinthians chapter 9 for though I am free and belong to no one I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible if you understand a little bit about the city you can understand how emotive his language would be here I'm, I'm free but I make myself I make myself a slave just as y'all were weren't slaves now he says make yourself a slave again he says to the Jews I become like a Jew To win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law. So to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become like the weak. No. It says to the weak, I become weak in order to win the weak. I become all things to all people so that by all means possible, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its its blessings. He says, to the Jews, I become like them. To those, I become like them. He says, but to the weak, I genuinely become weak. So I I don't put on a facade and pretend, I don't pretend to be weak. He says, I genuinely am weak. And by doing that, the only way I can do that is to acknowledge my weakness before all of you. He writes to them again in Second Corinthians chapter twelve, and he says, God says to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul says again, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight, I delight in weakness, in insult, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulty, for when I'm weak, then I am strong. Friends, in the Christian life, the way to power is through weakness. But it's not only a secret weakness. It's us being content with our own weakness and also being content for others to see us as weak. See, there's been a trend in the, in the church for a little while now for people not to want to, and when I say the church, I'm, not, I'm talking about the church globally, for people not to want to identify themselves as a Christian. So they'll say things like, uh, I'm a follower of Jesus, or I have a relationship with Jesus. We're trying to distance ourselves from other people who call themselves Christian and have given the team a bad name, right? That's essentially what we're trying to do. So when you're talking to someone, do you feel that you're able to tell them you're a Christian, knowing that you are most likely, they will most likely immediately form an opinion of you that's not flattering? Or do you seek other ways to tell them that you're a Christian while trying to distance yourself from all the potential baggage that comes with that? So I've struggled with this often. When you meet new people, you're sitting around a bra, or whatever, you meet new people, what's the first thing that South Africans ask each other? What do you do? So I'm acutely aware that as soon as as soon as I say I'm a pastor. Their opinion of me is formed very quickly, right? So I try, I try and delay that conversation for as long as I can, right? Their, their opinion of me, I know, as soon as I say I'm a pastor, it's very quickly formed. I get judged in the light of every accusation, every scandal, every bad experience that they've had, every bad experience that their friend has had that they read about on Facebook from everywhere around the world. I get judged in the light of that. I know that. My authority is called into question. My legitimacy is called into question. As soon as you tell people you're a Christian, the same thing happens. They will assume every bad thing that they've heard or seen about Christians and the church, and they will apply it to you also. Your authority, your legitimacy will be called into question. In other words, they will see you as weak. So what do we do? We try and find a clever way of telling people that we're Christians, so we can still let them know we're Christians, but that they don't see us as weak at the same time. We don't want to be misjudged, we don't want to be be characterized with the rest of the guys who try to drop the ball, forgetting that we dropped the ball behind the scenes. We don't want to be with the public ball droppers, we want to be be with the guys who hide the dropping of their balls, right? So I try try to find clever ways of telling people that I'm a project manager and I work at the church now. Because we don't want people to see us as weak. We think that if they see us as weak, it will harm the gospel advancing. But it's a little bit worse than that. When we dig down into our heart of it, what it reveals is that we think the gospel only advances through strong, capable people who are stronger, better looking, more successful than us. Men and women who steer clear of menial things and bask in the lights of success. Men and women who have advanced from freedmen to the top of society. In our deepest of hearts, sometimes what that, what that reveals is that's what we believe the gospel needs to advance through me. It needs me to be strong. It, the gospel needs me, God needs me to be capable to advance through me. Nothing could be further from the truth. The way to power in the kingdom of God, is not through strength, it's through weakness. It's It's not through exerting my authority, it's through submitting to authority. Paul says, no, I bask, I boast in my weakness. Because through my weakness, the power of God, the gospel is put on display. I'm happy for people to misjudge me. I'm happy for people to see me as weak and menial and incapable of all of those other things. Because the gospel doesn't need strong, capable people to advance. The gospel doesn't work in me and through me only when I'm qualified enough and capable enough and strong enough. No, friends, it works in me and through me when I recognize my need for it. And when I'm strong and capable, I'm far less likely to recognize my need for it than when I'm weak and insufficient and inadequate. When I view myself as adequate and strong and capable, I trust my own ability. I don't need to abide in Jesus. I don't need to keep relying on him for everything. In Acts chapter 9, the followers of Jesus are called the way. Paul, Paul writes to the Pharisees and he asks them for a letter so that uh, he, he can take a letter to go and persecute and uh, arrest and put to death followers of the way. Christians, right? That's the letter that Paul uses to persecute the church with. Christians, followers of Jesus are called the way. And the reason that they're called the way is because they were known for their way of life. They lived their lives a certain way. They weren't known for doing things. They weren't known for doing certain things. They were known for their way of life, how they live their life. There's a difference. See, I can do certain things and my heart is I can do certain things and my heart doesn't need to be made new. But for me to live my life a certain way, my heart has to be made new. And then from from as my heart is being made new, then I act. I don't act, I don't act in uh, out of out of, uh, out of place with that. And so we, don't, we can't take something, we can't look at something that we do and say that's Christian or that's not Christian, looking merely at an act of something that we do. We also have to look at the way, the way that it was done, the way that it was achieved, the way that it was said. And then we have to look at the spirit, the spirit in which it was done, the spirit through which it was achieved, the spirit in which it was said. Remember we spoke about Paul says, Paul says to the Corinthian church, there's a small spirit, a small S spirit and a big S spirit, and you, you're content with a different spirit. There's a, there's a spirit to how you do things. So there has to be a straight line to be, able to, to be able to be drawn between the act, the way, and the spirit. How I act has to be in accordance with my way of life, and it has to be in obedience to the spirit that I've received. I can't just look at an action and say, that action is Christian, or that action is not Christian. That's good. Well, that's bad. No, how I act has to be in accordance with my way of life, and it has to be in obedience to the spirit that I've received. And so we're speaking about power today. And our understanding in society today, friends, is quite similar to the Corinthian understanding. As a society, we value people who are impressive. We strive to be impressive ourselves. But remember, power is not just an act. it's a way to power, and there's a spirit to power. So I want to look at three ways to power in the kingdom real quick, and then we're done. The way, to, the way of power in the kingdom is nurtured in obscurity, and it has everything to do with you seeing yourself and others seeing you as limited and inadequate. The way to power in the kingdom is, every, is, is nurtured in obscurity, and it has everything to do with you seeing yourself and others seeing you as limited. And inadequate, and if you put all three of those those things together, that's a great motivational poster for your bedroom. <laughs> I am obscure, limited, and inadequate. See, <laughs> so I think the problem is people get a, people get accused of preaching a self-help gospel, The gospel of you if you're strong enough and if you're good enough, you can you can do it. It seems to be quite opposite to the gospel that Paul preaches. The way to power in the kingdom is nurtured in obscurity, and it's got everything to do with you seeing yourself and others seeing you as limited and inadequate. You see, we've got an option to take power and exert power and to dominate, or we can delight in our weaknesses, because then and only then is the true power of the gospel put on display through my weakness. The power of the gospel is not put on display through my strength, It's put on display through my weakness. In my strength, I'm already strong. In my weakness, God is strong. So here's what it means. I'm selling those motivational posters afterwards, by the way. You can put them up on your wall. (laughs) T-shirts. The way to power in the kingdom. Firstly, is an obscurity. I don't know if you've ever wondered about Jesus' life as a child. If you wondered what Jesus was like as a child. So we have a story of Jesus' birth. At Christmas time, we go through that, and there's this there's prophecy, and, there, and there's, 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 a, there's a lot of miracles taking place when Jesus is born. And then we know quite a bit about Jesus' three years of ministry. We know a lot about his death and his resurrection thereafter. But there's 30 years between his birth and his ministry. He starts his ministry at age 30. There's 30 years that Jesus lives in obscurity. For 30 years he lives. Isaiah 53 says this about Jesus. He grew up like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. See, if... If Jesus had come to earth as God, he could have come as God. People would have been drawn by, by what, we, what people were looking for in power was a God. Jesus came to show another way. He said, no, I didn't come as God and I didn't come looking good, being clever, educated, eloquent, strong. He says, no, I came as a servant. Took on the form of a human and then I actually, more than that, I became obedient to death. He says, It says, you grew up like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground, Isaiah says. Do you know that bamboo grows for three years underground before it breaks the surface? You're looking for a cash crop, Bamboo's not it. You want a quick turnover. Bamboo grows for three years underground before it breaks the surface. Once it breaks the surface, it grows at 88 centimeters a day. Just under a meter a day. The only way it's able to do that is because it's spent three years growing underground. So Jesus spends 30 years in obscurity. He's born, and he begins his ministry at age 30. He spends 30 years growing, developing in obscurity. We get one we get one story, one glimpse into Jesus' life, and I think it's for parents that we get that glimpse. Here's why. We see Jesus as a young boy sitting in the temples in, in Luke chapter 2. We see... Uh, they, uh, Mary and Joseph lose Jesus. We, we've, we've lost our son for three days before you realize it, right? That's a good lesson for parents. Make sure you know where your child is at the end of every day. It's so the first lesson. Second lesson, they go back and they look for Jesus. Where is he? They find him in the temple courts debating uh, with the Pharisees, with the religious scholars, of so they're actually schooling the scholars. They find Jesus there as a boy. And the Bible says this in Luke chapter 2, in verse 51, it says, Mary treasured up all of these things in her heart. She took all the miracles, all the words of prophecy that she'd received f- from Jesus at his birth. She looked and she saw him as a kid, schooling the scholars. And she didn't go and shout from the rooftops, this is my son. She didn't put it in the WhatsApp group, my son is a God. She allowed Jesus a space to grow in obscurity. She treasured up these things in her heart. Friends, I think one of the reasons that so many of us are not Spending time in obscurity is firstly because we're eager to pop through the soil before our three years is up, and secondly, because others are eager to pop us through the soil before our time as our parents. Your kids need time in the soil. If your kid takes three years to pop through the soil, that's fine. There's such pressure on uh, crawling. And if your kid crawls at nine months, if he crawls at one year, when he's 25, what difference does it make, genuinely? If it takes him two years to get through a trick, when he's 25, what difference does it make? If he plays C-team cricket and rugby and soccer, when he's 30 and, he has, and, and he's happy and healthy and wise, what difference does it make? We're so, we're so eager to, to advance because we want power and prestige and esteem. And Jesus says, no, sp- spend 30 years in the soil. Spend time in obscurity, nurturing and growing. It says, Mary treasured up these things in her heart. She didn't push Jesus forward when his time as an eight-year-old. One of the healthiest things that we can do to embrace this kingdom way of power is to cultivate a sense of nobodiness. I don't know if that's a word. Cultivate a sense of nobodiness. Paul does this. He views himself as nobody and actually encourages the church to do the same. And then he embraces their weak labels. He says, you think I'm not very impressive? (laughs) You're right. One of the most freeing things that I, I did when I first started driving was obviously when you're, when you're a new driver, you, you, you're quite fast. And um, I would drive, let's call it, let's call it, let's call it well and, and badly at the same time through traffic. And um, people would constantly hoot and uh, out the window shout, yeah, you cut me off, you're such, you drive so badly. And then everything in you wants to exert your dominance and authority. No, I'm not, you're a bad driver, right? You know, one of the most disarming things you can do is you, you're right. I did cut you off and I'm sorry. You're a bad driver. You're right. I am a bad driver. I'll try to do better next time. So this isn't an exercise in self-loathing. It's not an exercise in self-loathing. Cultivating a sense of nobodiness and embracing weak labels is not self-loathing. Embracing your weakness through obscurity doesn't mean that you abandon any of the truths about who God says you are. I'm loved by the Father. I'm created in his image to advance his kingdom. But those truths don't override the existence of my weakness. I've been inspired by a friend's mom recently. She was a lady of faith and a lady who was happy with obscurity. We were speaking about her life and the impact that she had for the gospel the other nights. And I said to my friend, what was your mom's name? And he said to me, you won't have heard of her. Not many people would have. And as we kept discussing something of what her life. Stood for my reply back to him was yes, but heaven knew her name. See, she was a lady who understood the power of obscurity, of advancing the kingdom while no one knows who you are. She'd cultivated a sense of nobodiness. She'd embraced weak labels. Friends, we have to allow ourselves the space to grow in obscurity, in obscurity, by cultivating a sense of nobodiness and embracing weak labels. Secondly, we are limited. As humans, we've been created finite, limited. We try and motivate ourselves, we try and motivate our kids, anything is possible. You can do anything. The possibilities are endless. The problem is that they're not. We're limited. The possibilities are limited. Why? Because we are limited. As a kid, I can remember watching Carl Lewis set the world record for 100 meters and sitting there thinking to myself as a kid, how can anybody run 100 meters under 10 seconds? It seemed impossible. Right? So the guy that, what is it, the minute mile or the four minute mile, the guy that broke the four minute it was impossible until he did it. And then like, breaking 10 seconds for the 100 meters was impossible. And then, and then he did it. And now most top sprinters break the 100 meters, um, break the 10 second barrier for 100 meters. It's, it's pretty standard for a top sprinter. Nobody's broken the nine second barrier yet. It seems impossible. Right? We like putting motivational posts, it seems impossible until someone does it. Right, that was the 10 second barrier. And it's, it probably could be the nine second barrier. It seems impossible until somebody, until some freak of nature comes along in a couple of years time and breaks the nine second barrier, all right? Here's the point. Nobody's gonna break the one second barrier. Nobody can run the 100 meters under a second, all right? So what that means is somewhere between one and nine, there's a limit. I don't know what the limit is, but somewhere between one and nine, there is a limit that nobody will get further. Nobody will get faster, because we were created with limits. All as humans, we are we are we are all limited by three things: we are limited by creation, we are limited limited by our uniqueness, and we are limited by our sin. All of us are created finite. And so when God creates, he says to the sea, you, you go there and you stop there. He says to the land, you go there and you stop there. He says to Adam and Eve, you go there and you eat this and you name that, but you don't eat from that tree. When he creates, creation is limited. It has sets and boundaries. Every, every, everything that God has created, including humans, has sets and boundaries. All of us are also limited by our uniqueness. I, for example, am uniquely limited by I cannot run the 100 meters under 10 seconds. That's my unique limitation. All of you are limited by your uniqueness. You have unique limitations that perhaps I don't have and that others don't have. And then all of us are uniquely lim- are limited by our sin. There's certain things that some people will never be able to do because of sin. Not because they haven't been forgiven, but because sin has placed a limitation on you. You can ask any of the people in active recovery about this afterwards if you want. What does it mean to embrace your limitations? I have to view myself and keep viewing myself as limited. If I keep viewing myself as unlimited, I start to believe that I'm also unlimited in power because a person who has no limits can't imagine a power outside of their own. As soon as I think of myself as unlimited, I also want others to think of me as unlimited also. I like them to look at me and think, yo, that guy could do anything feels good to see that, right? So we've got five kids in our house, in our household. Our house is quite busy. It's a bit like a beehive at sunrise and sunset, right? It's just a hive of activity. I, I, I could quite easily drop a whole lot of balls behind the scenes and in front of the scenes smile and look like everything is in order, right? I look good in front of the scenes. And what happens when I do that is people look at me and think to themselves, Yo, that guy's limitless. He could do anything. That feels good. We want people to think that of us. So, what we, what we have intentionally done in our house is to invite people into our house in times of chaos. Because I want them to see what my house is like, what my household is like behind the scenes. Because when they sit in my house and, it's, and kids are arriving home from school and trying to finish homework and trying to eat a meal and trying to prepare for the next day, they, 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 they're not thinking to themselves, you're that guy is limitless. They're thinking to themselves, you're he limited. Very limited. <laughs> but it's healthy. It's healthy. It's actually very healthy for them to see the balls being dropped, for them to see the fruit being lost behind the scenes, so that not only can I embrace my limitations, but they can see me as limited also. And then lastly, I'm inadequate. To embrace the way of power in the kingdom is to see yourself and to see myself as inadequate. Again, that's not an exercise in self-loathing, it's an exercise in reminding myself that I don't have it I don't have what it takes. I desperately need Jesus every single day. On my own, I'm inadequate. In Exodus chapter 16, we have the story of the Israelites and God providing manna for them. Every single day he's providing manna for them. And then it says that um, what happened was God said to them, don't gather it up, I will provide it for you every day. But some of the Israelites, because they listened so well, gathered it up, try to keep it overnight in a lunchbox, Find the next day when they came, it was full of maggots and it stunk. What God was reminding them is that every single day, you are inadequate. You can't gather things and make a plan for yourself. On your own, you are inadequate. You, what you, actually, you need me every single day. And when I view myself as adequate, I start to rely on my, on my own ability to make a plan. I know what I'll do. I'll put manna in a lunchbox, store some for tomorrow. Then I can sleep in a bit later. I get a bit more rest. Then I don't actually need God tomorrow. I can make a plan on my own. Start to view myself as adequate. Every single day, I need Jesus. I am desperate for Jesus because on my own, I'm inadequate. Too many Christians today believe that if they could just become a bit more adequate, that God would use them more. If I could just become a bit more better, a bit better, then God would love me more. If I could just become better, then perhaps God would provide for me more. Perhaps he would open more doors for me. No, friends. Your adequacy is not what opened doors for you. Your adequacy is not what makes God love you and provide for you. It's your inadequacy. And if I don't keep reminding myself of this, God will remind me of it. When I try to become self-reliant, I realize that my self-reliance is full of maggots and it stinks. Every time I preach, every time I preach, part of my preparation is to say to myself and to say to God, I have nothing to give these people. My confidence is not in my preparation. My confidence is not in my study. My confidence is not not in what I've learned and what I've done. And my ability to speak. My confidence is not in that. Come, come sit. My confidence is not in that. I have nothing to give these people. But Jesus, I'm fully reliant on you. All I have to give them is you. So as soon as I start to think of myself as adequate, the next step is I'm good enough to do this on my own, right? If I think of myself as adequate, the next step is... Good enough to do this on my own. Too many Christians are good enough to do this on their own. I don't need God. I can make a plan. I'll keep manna overnight in a jar. We were good enough. Come, Sit. You can come. You're not worried. We're not worried. <laughs> Thanks, Shaman. If I can make a plan, if I can keep manna in a jar, then I'm I'm adequate enough to not need God in the morning. Friends, the way to power in the kingdom is through weakness. It's not through trying harder. It's not through jockeying for recognition and position and power and authority. The way to power in the kingdom is to see myself and to embrace others seeing me as limited and inadequate as I develop in obscurity. Can you stand with me, please?